Well, it's good to see Steve and Ambika back from their vacation. I know they enjoy themselves and were rested, and uh, we're just grateful that we have servants such as them that have been here for 20 years in January, celebrated their 20th anniversary. So it's, uh, it's been a great 20 years here. They, were, they celebrated their anniversary for 25 <laughs> But we're just so thankful that we have uh, men and women that serve in such a capacity. And it led me to look at this set of verses uh, because we, a lot of times we look at our ministers as they're the ones who carry the torch. They're the ones who go outside these four walls into the byways of the world, and they're the ones that are responsible. Well, God calls us all to be ministers. Those of us who are believers our ministers no matter where we go. And we face some obstacles, but because of Christ and His life and Holy Spirit, we are triumphing that. So in today's text, what I want to do is I want to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 12 and read through chapter 3 to give you a context of what we're looking at here. So if you're Turning there, 2 Corinthians. If you have the Bible that's in your chair, it's page 965. And we'd encourage you to follow along. It says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to you, brought to an end, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to, to, this, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your words. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you that we're not under 
the old covenant, but under the new, because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection, Father, we have triumph, we have victory. And Lord, as we look at our text this morning, I pray that those that are here, Lord, would look at themselves personally, understand what you're saying, and Father, what the world sees. So Lord, we thank you again for bringing us to this place. And we look forward to how you're going to teach us through the power of your Spirit. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. The verses we're going to be looking at are from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6. Much of our history has been through written letters. It was, queen, it was a letter to Queen Isabella that Christopher Columbus first broke the news of the New World. It was in a letter to his colleagues that Galileo first revealed the secrets of his telescope. It was in a letter to his children that Louis Pasteur first exposed the medical marvel of inoculation. It was in a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt that pacifist Albert Einstein explained how to build and why we needed an atom bomb. Letters often tell more about the writer than they do about the subject I didn't know this, but this is interesting. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the world's greatest artists, wrote to the Duke of Milan applying for his dream job. He wanted to be a soldier. William Randolph Hearst, the man who preached, never let the facts interfere with a good story, wrote his father with strategies to make the San Francisco Examiner more profitable. He said, let's hire naive young men from the East who still believe there's fortune to be found in the West. You see, there was no internet, no email, no social media, no texting, no faxing. Letters were one of the best ways to communicate at one time, and still are to this day. They were documents of information that you could read over and over. So let's take a look back some 2,000 years at some letters that were written to the early church. Letters especially from the Apostle Paul, the church's chief correspondent, were the most talked about documents of their day. They were the broadcasting system, the information highway, or the internet, if you will, of the early church. Each new delivery was read and reread by those who were eager to know more about their newfound faith and hear from their pastor, Paul. His letters became the church's sermon notes and Bible studies, all rolled into one. So closely was letter writing associated with the church that Paul used this metaphor when he referred to the church at Corinth as his personal letters of endorsement. Their changed lives would validate his ministry. The proof was in the lives that they were now living. They were an example of what God's word will do in a person's life. As in Corinth, the churches of today are testimonies of the teachings they are receiving and the lives that have been changed through that teaching of God's incredible word. Some followed the false teachers and would take on the personalities that God never intended and Paul would never have approved. But Scripture is filled with living letters whose lives took on a decidedly different tone when confronted with the truth. Matthew once a tax collector, but now an apostle and a gospel writer. Mary Magdalene, once demon-possessed, but now a follower of Christ. Nicodemus, once the ruler of the Jews, but now caring for the crucified Savior. The woman at the well, once morally bankrupt, but now an evangelist, telling others of her encounter with the Messiah. Each believer's life becomes an exposed letter to the world known and read by all, a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What do you think of when you hear someone is receiving a letter of commendation? What are those types of letters? Now remember, the illustration I'm going to give you is hypothetical, so it doesn't reflect on anybody you may or may not know, but I'm going to give you an example. Let's say you have a coworker named Bob, and you notice he's doing good things for the company, and maybe some of his work has made the job easier for his boss, Steve. 
A letter of commendation for Bob is a note where you say that he's doing good things and commending him for it. You send the note to Steve. Why? So he can put it in his file and maybe give Bob an attaboy later on for Bob's good work. Or maybe it's a building block for Bob's future, for his advancement, maybe a raise. How do we develop letters of commendation? Before you start writing, you gather information. What is Bob's official description? Who is his boss? In this case, it's Steve. What has Bob done that's worthy of recognition? For how long is Bob doing this, and how has it helped? Why would we need letters of commendation? Good service should be recognized. It's the right thing to do. People like good news. It gives them an emotional boost. If you write a good news letter, you yourself get a boost from writing it. And Steve can get a boost from receiving it because one of his team members is doing good things. If it leads to some reward, more good news. Then Bob's friends and associates get a boost as well. When would we need letters of commendation? Good timing varies. Some instances of what could be poor timing right before a big deadline or nearing the end of a fiscal year of a department or within a few days of Steve's vacation. Try to pick a good time so Steve can pay more attention to your letter. You could send Steve an email also. However, writing a note by hand or adding a brief addition to a printed note shows a little bit more care and effort and feels more personal. A couple of days later, you might want to follow up with Steve to see if he's read the letter and make sure he understood what you wrote and what you meant. These are letters of commendation for you. Well, let's look at our text again this morning. And I'm going to read it in a paraphrase uh, translation here. It says, Does it sound like we are patting ourselves on the back Insisting on our credentials, asserting our authority? Well, we're not. Neither do we need letters of endorsement, either to you or from you. You yourselves are all the endorsement we need. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human hearts, and we publish it. We couldn't be more sure of ourselves in this that you, written by Christ himself for God, are our letters of recommendation. We wouldn't think of writing this kind of letter about ourselves. Only God can write such a letter. His letter authorizes us to help carry out this new plan of action. The plan wasn't written out with ink on paper, with pages and pages of legal footnotes, killing your spirit. It was written with spirit on spirit, his life on our lives. In Paul's day, he wrote letters for traveling preachers and evangelists with letters of recommendation and introduction to various churches. And Paul himself wrote some of those letters in Acts 18, 26 through 28. He says, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Apollos resolved to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And on his arrival, he greatly aided those who were, by grace, had believed. In Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, it says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And in 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 3, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by a letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. He's talking about Timothy here. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. These letters helped Paul's trusted companions and friends find a welcome and a support 
in the various churches they visited. However, some false teachers had started these same type of letters to gain a speaking platform. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise of his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And above, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, thanks be to God who are in Christ, always leads us in triumph procession, and through us spreads the fragrant, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we, walk, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. These traveling hucksters of the word of God, as Paul called them, peddlers, the Greek word here has the idea of a con artist or a street hawker, one who deceives unwary buyers into purchasing a cheap imitation of the real thing. These false teachers who combined a mixture of divine truth and Jewish legalism had come to Corinth with these letters. Perhaps they were authentic, but most likely they were forged and were asking the Corinthians to recommend them to other churches so they could spread their lies. The letters gained them hospitality from members of other churches and an opportunity to speak, and some even received monetary reward. But apparently some of these false teachers had begun to criticize Paul's authority by subtly asking if he had presented any letters of recommendation to them. Justifiably, Paul was annoyed that he would have to explain his apostolic credentials to the church that he had found. In a clear and forceful way and somewhat rhetorical, Paul stated that he did not need any such letter. The changed lives of the believers in Corinth, to whom he and his companions had preached the good news, were recommendation enough. Any discipleship program should be judged by the quality of those who have been discipled. With the statement, your letters, or your lives are letters written on and in your hearts. Paul expresses and defends his apostleship. As an evangelist, a pastor, and a protector of the truth, Paul was committed and connected to them personally. Their success was his. Their sorrows were also his. In this way, their lives of faith were etched in his heart and the hearts of the co-workers, Silas and Timothy. Just as the lives of the Corinthians were an open book to all, the intimate connection between the Corinthians and their founder, Paul, was evident to all who looked and took the time to look. So anything that the Corinthians did would also reflect on Paul and his ministry as well as their lives to those who saw them. If the Corinthians were Paul's letter of recommendation, then those letters were from Christ himself. In contrast to the false teachers at Corinth, Paul's ministry was authorized by Jesus. Paul's letter had been written by Christ himself. And this letter of Christ had been delivered by Paul and his co-workers. They were messengers of God with a glorious good news of salvation. It was a type of letter written not with a pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on stone, but on hearts of flesh and lives of those who believed. The Holy Spirit who was working in Corinth in their hearts was the guarantee of their glorious inheritance and was affirmed by the authenticity of Paul's message. Next, Paul compared this letter from Christ written to the Corinthians' hearts, or on the Corinthians' hearts, to the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on stone. Paul's point was clear. The signs of the Spirit work in a person's life are superior to any kind of writing, whether it was the church's recommendation of the law etched in stone. The imagery of the writing on human hearts comes from the prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah, foretelling the coming Messiah and the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, 
chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. These Old Testament prophets had predicted that one day God himself would remove Israel's heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart that would follow God's decrees because God himself had written his law on it. Paul was declaring to the Corinthians that the day Ezekiel had predicted had come. The Holy Spirit was writing God's law on their hearts and changing them from the inside out. In our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, it expresses three main points. First, as it relates to Paul himself, his ministry was supernatural. As it relates to the Corinthians themselves, their lives had been transformed. And as it relates to those outside the church, those who observed the reality of their changed lives. How are we to be effective ministers? First, we must have a godly reputation. Secondly, we must live a life of transformation. Third, we must rest in confident affirmation. Fourth, we must maintain a humble disposition. And fifth, we must proclaim the gospel of salvation. Let's look at the first one, how to be an effective minister. Are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring your, you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. In Philippians 3, chapter 3, verses 3 to 11, Paul gives us his credentials as a Jew and now being saved. So kind of under the law and now under grace. He is the man who can do that. He has the authority. We must have a godly reputation. How can we achieve a godly reputation? Well, first of all, a godly reputation comes from being obedient to God's Word. Some people work hard to make others think they're smart. The books they carry, the facts that they quote, they might be impressive. But Moses said that a reputation for wisdom comes from obeying God's Word. This may not be the easiest or most glamorous way to earn a reputation in the world's eyes, but it is the most authentic. Obeying God's word will give you a far greater reputation because it's not just what you know, but what you do with what you know because of who you know. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, it talks about See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land, that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to us as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I might set before you today? A godly reputation comes from being obedient to God's word. Secondly, a godly reputation comes from consistent living. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our reputations are formed not only by our faith, but also the people who watch us at work, in our town, 
our neighbors, in our church. A godly reputation comes by consistent living out the qualities that you believe in, that you've trusted in, no matter what group of people or what surroundings you find yourself in. We all have a reputation whether we like it or not, whether we intentionally try to project a certain image or couldn't care less what others think. People do form opinions of us through our behavior, our personality, and our abilities. A good reputation can gain us many friends, as well as a bad reputation, many ungodly friends. The Bible encourages us to build our reputation on solid character rather than on external images. A reputation built on images alone without substance eventually becomes sinking sand. Should we as believers be concerned about our reputation? Proverbs 3, 3 and 4 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." 1 Timothy 3.7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. 1 Peter 2.12, Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's important. How can an ungodly reputation be changed? True repentance is the beginning. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Acts 3.19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In the familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's hope for the ungodly. Philippians 4, 8, 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worth of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be in you. Another encouragement from 3 John chapter 1. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to you your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Many times we behave as we believe. How are we to be effective ministers? First, we must have a godly reputation. Secondly, we must live lives of transformation. Verses 2 and 3 says, The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are letters written in our, some manuscripts say, your hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our mystery among you. This letter is written not with pen or ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. Paul did not want to have anything to do with vain boasting. Yet he expressed his confidence and assurance in his own ministry, not because of his eloquence, not because of his sophistication, not because of his education, but because of God in Christ who had commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus. 
Paul had asked, who was competent for the task of preaching the good news in 2.16 of chapter of 1-2 Corinthians? And here in verses 2 and 3, Paul answered his own question. Only those who are called by God will have power and success. This might have been a slight snub to Paul's opponents in Corinth, for they were boasting of their wisdom, their eloquence, their superior Jewish ancestry. And as it became clear in this passage, their letters of commendation. In contrast, Paul refused to boast in himself. Instead, he boasted in Christ's strength, which had become evident through his weakness and the trials he had endured for the cause of Christ. Verse 3, you are a letter of Christ showing the results of our ministry among you. It was a letter declaring Christ's authorship, carried about and presented by its ministers to the world for whom it was intended. These letters were not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Paul was the instrument used by God. He was the carrier of the letter, but not with the ink. He stands in contrast to the letters of recommendation which others were teaching. The ink also represents any physical material used for writing, such as the stone that the law was given. Christ's letter is written by the Spirit of God, by which the Spirit gives life, as opposed to the ministry of death inherent in the law. This alludes back to what I was reading earlier in the book of Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. God said that he would take away the hearts of stone and give his believers hearts of flesh. At the same time, he would give them his spirit on such a heart, God, by his spirit, would inscribe the fulfillment of his law in Christ. It's easier to write on a pliable material than it is on stone. How is your heart? One of God's primary concerns is with our hearts. In 1 Samuel 16, as we're going through on Wednesday night, Steve is teaching through 1 Samuel, and as we looked a couple weeks ago, um, going through the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, some of the teachings of Solomon, we see that in choosing David in this passage, the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not make decisions the way we do. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at a person's thoughts, motivations, and intentions, their inner parts, their hearts. And in First Chronicles 28, it says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your fathers and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of thought. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. When people judge by outward appearance, they may overlook quality individuals who lack the particular physical qualities or culture currently, that our culture currently admires. Appearance doesn't reveal what people are really like or their value. In the world in which we live in today, we are inundated by advertising, advertising, commercials, whether they're banners, posters, signs on the freeway, all having to do with your exterior. What is your image? What do you look like? What is successful? And underneath that facade is the real you, the heart that God sees. Fortunately, God judges by faith and character, not by appearances. And because only God can see on the inside, only He can accurately judge people's hearts. Most people spend hours each week maintaining their outward appearance. However, they should do even more to develop their inward character. While everyone can see your face, your clothes, the car you drive, the house you live in, only God can see in your heart. It's a reality, whether you accept it or not, is true. 
What if our hearts are unclean? Well, we sang that song this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Psalm 51. Also, 1 John 3.19, it says, It is by your actions that we know we are living in the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before the Lord, even if our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Our hearts need to be subject to God's Word. Romans 6.17 says, Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you have obeyed with all your hearts the new teaching God has given you. We need to cultivate hearts of submission, hearts of obedience, hearts of conformity, hearts of humility, hearts of compassion, hearts of integrity, hearts of honesty. We must have hearts of flesh. Our commitment to God should be wholehearted. Very, very familiar set of verses in Matthew 22 says that we are to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Can any one of us do that on our own? I don't think so. Proverbs 3.3 3 says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. We saw that before. Well, let's look at this. What is a letter? The letter is a story, the headlines, the pages that are written. It is the good news. When we become believers in Christ, we begin a new chapter in our book of life. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Our names are written in a different book, in a new book. And the pages of our lives take on a new theme, a new purpose. The news of our day is filled with tragedy, turmoil, trials. However, God's letter is always good. It has the only redemptive, life-giving, life-changing news there ever was and ever is. The gospel in its truest sense by which anyone who believes can be saved. Someone once said that we have millions of books that can change our way of thinking, but there's only one book that can change our nature. I want to go back to Jeremiah just to pay attention to the personal pronoun here. It says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on the day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them down in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is personal. It depends on what you're reading. What are you seeing, viewing, listening to? What are you exposing yourself to? Are you being influenced by the intellect of this world? Are you being compromised by the philosophies that are taught? Are you being confused by false truths of this world? Or are you being submissive to the real writings of the truth? What type of surface is being written on? In Ezekiel 11, it says, When people return to the homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will will be their God. Our attitudes, motives, and intentions have great impact on how and what we receive. Are we critical? Are we judgmental? Are we over-controlling? Are we a rights-oriented person? Are we impatient? Are we receptive? Our hearts must be pliable to God's word. Our reception must be tuned into God's program. Our desire must be according to God's will. So what type of paper does God have to work with in your lives? Whose ink is being used? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit, 
I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. The ink that God uses to write with is not made by human hands. It has not been developed by man's technology or his intellect. And it's the type of ink that will never fade. God's ink is not of this world and is not subject to the laws of this world. God's ink is permanent and is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because it's eternal. Once God writes on your heart, he will be faithful to keep his word. But will we? How are we to be effective ministers? First, we must have a godly reputation. Secondly, we must live a life of transformation. And thirdly, we must rest in confident affirmation. Verses 4 through 6. We are confident all of this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualifications come from God. He has enabled us to be minister of his, of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. God had enabled Paul and his companions to represent the new covenant. This is one of the two times Paul uses this word uh, in the Greek term for new covenant. The other reference is when he's talking about it in 1 Corinthians 11 about the cup of the new covenant. Most likely, Paul was using the terminology again when we refer back to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel. And they spoke of this new covenant that God would be writing on his people's hearts. In our text, verse 6 ends with a short adage. The old way ends in death. In the new way, the Holy Spirit gives life. The old way is referring to the Old Testament law, the summary of that law. Paul's letters to the Romans shows that Paul, without hesitation, denied that following the law can achieve salvation. Instead, the law only makes people conscious of their sin, the sin that immediately leads to death. Trying to be saved by laws, church-made rules, long-time traditions will only end in death, only by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on your behalf can a person receive eternal life through the Holy Spirit. No one but Jesus has ever fulfilled the law perfectly or ever will. The whole world is condemned. But under the new covenant, this eternal life comes from Christ. The Spirit gives new life to all who believe and trust in him. Here's a couple affirmations. Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation. Romans 8.37 We are more than conquerors. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are a new creation. Philippians 4.13 Can do all things through Christ. Hebrews 13.5 He will never leave us or forsake us. Those are rich affirmations that if you have any doubt about your relationship with Christ, there are, these are only a few. Go through the Scriptures and look for yourself the assurance we have in our salvation. We must have a godly reputation, live a life of transformation. We must rest in confident affirmation, and we must maintain a humble disposition. Verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency, sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Familiar verses, but listen to them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world 
and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 2 Timothy 1.9 He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our good works, but by his own purpose, by the grace he granted us in Christ Jesus before time eternal. In Titus 3.5 He saved us not by the righteous deeds we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of new birth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Lest you have any doubt, there is nothing any one of us can do for our salvation. Nothing. People try all the time. It's empty. It's not rewarding. I don't care how good of a person you think you are and how many good things you've done. There is nothing that you can do to gain God's favor outside of Christ. Finally, we must proclaim the gospel of salvation Verse 6 says, He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. This is a covenant not written of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life, the glory of the new covenant. In 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17 familiar verses, we've all read them before, it says, But you must be faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes from trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. To make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. All of us need to be able ministers. We must be competent ministers. We must be sufficient ministers. And we must be equipped ministers. A believer has the indwelling spirit in their lives to replace the written code, a code which attempted to dictate appropriate behavior under every possible circumstance, but failed for the letter kills. But through the Spirit, in Romans 7, 9 through 11, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of life is in Christ Jesus, who through His resurrection became a life-giving Spirit. The Spirit gives life to the world. The letter or the written word is nothing without the Spirit, since its subject is essentially spiritual and discerned spiritually. A true minister of Christ is commended first by his servanthood. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 tells us, As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, each of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another. A true minister of Christ is marked by the integrity of their message and their methods. They are not peddlers of God's word, selling the truth for their own gain, but those who simply and truthfully proclaim God's word clearly, in such a way that lives are changed, not by the words that they speak, but by the very word of God itself. A true minister of Christ is evident when people are convicted and converted, not by a said prayer, but by the very word of God, to the point that those lives are noticeable and you can see the change. A true minister of Christ may not have lofty degrees or letters of commendation after their names, but you can see God's fingerprints all over their lives. Galatians five sixteen and 17 encourage us, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As followers of Christ, we are called to be ministers of his good news. 
1 Corinthians 9.16 says, Yet when I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I am obligated to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What type of commendation are we asking others to receive or validate in the ministry of our faith? Is our life an open book, transparent to others so they can see the reality of a changed life, or do we hide our faith? Can people accurately read who we are, or do we choose, depending on who we're with or where we are and what circumstances we find ourselves in, we veil our faith? Do we give credit where credit is due, or do we place ourselves in a position of glory? Are we more concerned with what we look like rather than who we are in Christ? I'll close with this. Habitat for Humanity started officially in 1976, but unofficially when founder Millard Fuller went into Zaire with a church group to build a not-for-profit housing It started in 68. With the beginning undergirded with little except for prayer and a vision for what God could do, Habitat has grown into one of the nation's largest home builders. Fuller describes Habitat as an alive, dynamic, Christ-centered movement that welcomes Christians and non-Christians alike to participate in building houses for the poor. Fuller takes special delight when people listen to the message behind the sweat and the nails and the saws. Recently, he returned to the site of a, of a President Jimmy Carter work project in Charlotte, North Carolina. He spotted a five-year-old boy playing in the yard of the house that Carter had helped build. After complimenting the boy on his beautiful home, Fuller asked him, "'Who built your house, son?' Expecting to hear the boy say, President Jimmy Carter built my house, sir. He said, Jesus built my house. Who's building your house? Can we give the same response as that five-year-old boy? Is your life a living letter expressing true faith in Christ? If it's not, God is merciful. He'll meet you right where you are. All you need to do is surrender. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the power of your word, the depth of your word. And I pray, Father, that if there is anybody here who is uncertain about their relationship with you, that, Lord, that they would take time to evaluate And I know they've probably heard these words over and over and over, but God, the message is the same. Without you, we are lost forever. Help us lay aside our pride. Help us humble ourselves before a holy God. So many times we don't realize how holy you are. We take you for granted, Lord. But I pray, Father, that the words heard today through the power of your Holy Spirit, would convict those hearts, not of my words, Lord, but of the words that are spoken through your scriptures. We thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives. We thank you, Father, for your protection, your provision, your affirmations. For without you, Lord, we are nothing. So I pray, Father, that those who are hearing, let them hear the good news of your gospel of grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.